So born to Brooklyn, okay, born to Brooklyn since we're in Brooklyn, the great film artist, dad fashionista, and lyricist once wrote, tell your friend Veronica, it's time to celebrate Hanukkah. I hope I get a harmonica on this lovely, lovely Hanukkah. If you've ever listened to Adam Sandler, you know his song has nothing to do with Hanukkah, right? It, it's a song he wrote not to explain it, not to really even celebrate it, but as a way to encourage all the little boys and girls who didn't grow up with Christmas trees and didn't have presents under them, all the little Jewish boys and girls in New York, that Hanukkah's better because instead of one day of presents, you have eight crazy nights. But is, Hanukkah is important for us as Christians to understand because 150, 160 years ago, uh, sorry, 150, 160 years before Jesus, Hanukkah happened, or, or the Maccabean Revolt. This revolt was really important to the Jewish community, specifically because the Greeks who ruled over them at the time wanted to stamp out and stop Jewish worship as a means of a rebellion, this revolt rises up. So Hanukkah is much more like Independence Day than it is about Christmas. But the goal through this sort of uh, guerrilla warfare style revolt was to cleanse the temple of God and to return to the worship of God. And the reason this is important is because today we're going to open up to John 18. We're going to read John 18. And as you think about Pilate, and Jesus standing before Pilate, Rome is occupying Israel. And Israel has a history of revolt. So as we read the passage today, I want you to hear the tension in the room of Pilate knowing this historical uh, monument, this historical situation, okay? So let me uh, read the passage and pray for us. And I do just want to say I'm very, very humbled to be here. Uh, standing behind this pulpit. So uh, let me read John 18, verse 33. John 18, verse 33. If you have your Bibles or your phones, please turn to John 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? Can we pray for us? Lord, as we open your word today, we do desire to see truth. You deserve, as we sang, all the glory. You alone deserve all the glory, all the worship. And we are so grateful that in a world that is not good to us, you are eternally good for us. And in Jesus' name, amen. So verse 33, 
Pilate entered his headquarters again and called to Jesus and said to him, are you king of the Jews? So John sets the stage for us. He doesn't give us a lot of background, but you can imagine Pilate. Pilate is a Roman soldier. Pilate's a military hero. He's a governor of Rome. You can imagine he's dressed not in the Jewish clothing, not in the, you know, the Middle Eastern desert clothing, but in the fashion of, of Milan. He looks different than everyone around him. You can imagine his headquarters, his palace. It doesn't look like the nomadic tents of the Middle East, but it has adopted Roman architecture, columns that you see in buildings, statues that we see in museums, tapestries hung from the wall. His house doesn't fit in the desert. Everything about Pilate doesn't fit. His house doesn't fit. His clothes don't fit. His life doesn't fit. He is a constant reminder to the Jewish people of occupation. He is a constant reminder that everything about Pilate is an enemy of the Jewish people. So soon Pilate gets to his house. He calls to him his problem of the day. His problem that just will not go away. So finally, Jesus is brought to Pilate. He may have been tied up. We don't, we don't know. He's brought to Pilate. And Pilate asks Jesus a simple yes or no question. It's a simple question. But it's a politically loaded question. Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate had already tried to avoid Jesus. So first Jesus comes to him. The, the religious leaders had no authority. So they need Pilate. They need Rome to execute their plan. They take Jesus to Pilate. They, you know, make up a lot of things about Jesus. They say he's an insurrectionist. They bring Jesus before Pilate. He doesn't want to deal with them. So he, Jesus, he sends Jesus back to the political, uh, sorry, back to the, the leaders of Israel. Well, that makes them mad. They take them back to Pilate. Then he thinks, oh, Herod, my boss is in town. I'm going to send Jesus to Herod. So he sends Jesus to Herod. Well, like all good middle managers, right? Herod sends that problem back down, right back down to Pilate to deal with. Jesus is the problem that will not go away. Jesus, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus would have understood this question, right? He knows Caesar is emperor. That's not just king, but that's a God-like king. If Jesus answers yes, he is guaranteed to be guilty. If he answers yes, all of the crowds that he gathered and the sermons he preached, those were no longer moral teaching. They were no longer religious worship services. They were stirring up political rallies. If he answers yes, he wasn't just feeding the hungry and healing the sick in some sort of altruistic way. No, he was building an army. Pilate is asking Jesus, are you a revolutionist? Are you, is this another Maccabean revolt? And you know, Pilate was the governor of Rome. Surely he had heard about Jesus. This son of a blue-collar carpenter who had this bad accent from Nazareth, who seemed to become this celebrity in the countryside, gathering huge crowds for three years, Jesus had been traveling around Judea, Galilee, preaching. 
healing, casting out demons, huge crowds would gather to see this spectacle that was Jesus, some of them believing, most of them hoping just to see another miracle. The Jewish leaders were enraged. These crowds made them jealous, made them angry. Fear had overcome them. And to make matters worse, when they would debate and argue with Jesus, he would get the best of them. And it wasn't just his knowledge, right? They, they were smart. They knew the Bible. It was the authority that Jesus taught with. The way Jesus could claim to forgive sins. The Pharisees went to all the right schools. Many of them came from money. They should have been experts at the law. Yet they were blind to what was right in front of them. All they could see when they saw Jesus was an uneducated, labor-class hillbilly. They were blind to Jesus because of their sin. Their sin blinded them. If they could have seen Jesus for who he really was, they would have known it wasn't a fair fight. They weren't arguing with someone who had studied the Bible. They were arguing with the author of it. Jesus wasn't a student of the Bible. He spoke it into existence. Are you Jesus, the king of the Jews? Verse 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? What a surprising response from Jesus. At first glance, maybe it looks like Jesus is sort of sidestepping the question. Kind of a classic lawyer technique, answering a question with a question. But if we really pause and meditate on Jesus' response, we will see something far more profound. Jesus isn't sidestepping this question. Jesus isn't new to debate. He spent plenty of time debating with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But what we see here is that also Jesus doesn't care about the trial that's in front of him. He's not afraid that he's about to be tried for death. All of us, if we were on death row, we would have been doing something, but we wouldn't have been doing this, right? We would have been defending ourselves, maybe. We would have been begging for mercy. We would have been trying to argue a lighter lighter sentence and settle outside of court. We would have been doing anything, but we would not have been doing this. But Jesus sees Pilate differently than we see Pilate. Jesus didn't see the trial that was in front of him. Jesus sees Pilate like he sees all of us, as a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus isn't sidestepping Pilate's question. Jesus is pressing into Pilate's heart. He is on trial to die, and yet he is giving Pilate the opportunity to be saved. Think about Paul in Romans 10:9. Paul, Romans 10:9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus knows he's about to go to the cross. He is going willingly to the cross. He's already foretold it to his disciples over and over and over again. What we see here is not Jesus defending himself. We see here Jesus' love for Pilate. 
even as Pilate is about to condemn him, Jesus is showing him the way to heaven. Here Jesus is saying, Pilate, do you believe I'm king? Do you see me as Lord? Or has someone just told you about me? That's an important question for all of us today. It is still relevant for us today. Do we see Jesus as king? Or do we just, have we just heard about him from someone else? Verse 35. Pilate answers, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate's answer reveals that he can't see. He can only see what's right in front of him. He is blind to who Jesus is. In fact, he smugly dismisses Jesus' question. What are you talking about, Jesus? I'm a Roman. I'm only here in this ghetto, backwater part of the Roman Empire because I want to work my way up. I want to get my stars. I want to go back to Italy. I want to go back to civilization. And then Pilate responds, I didn't arrest you. Your people put you here in front of me. What have you done, Jesus? You've obviously done something to be right here in front of me. Again, Pilate is begging Jesus to just incriminate himself so he can be done with it or, you know, answer him and he can get rid of him. He is begging him to just do something, say something. And Jesus finally answers Pilate, but it goes right over his head. Verse 36, Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus answers, yes, Pilate, I am a king. But I am so much more than a king. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this earth. My kingdom is above the earth. My kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. We know in Isaiah 66, 1, Jesus says, the heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool. Jesus' claim, it echoes the Old Testament prophets. It echoes Daniel 2, Daniel 7, where he says Jesus' kingdom will break all the other kingdoms and all the nations of the world, all the language of the world will serve him in a never-ending kingdom. It echoes Isaiah 2, where Jesus' throne is on the highest hill, higher above all the other nations. His kingdom is so marked by justice and peace that all the nations, they beat their weapons of war into farming tools. Or Amos 9, it echoes Amos 9, that Jesus' kingdom will rebuild all the gardens and the vineyards in Israel and the mountains will drip with an abundance of wine. This may have been news to Pilate, but this is the person Jesus had claimed to be throughout his whole ministry. All four Gospels have Jesus claiming to be this kingdom that will have no end, this king who rules from David's throne. Jesus is not been proclaiming an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. We have seen it in his sermons, and we have seen it with his deeds. When he heals what is broken, when he stops storms, when he casts out demons, when he raises people from the dead, only a king of heaven 
can do these things. And not only that, but Jesus doesn't just give him a spiritual answer. He actually gives him a really practical answer. He says, you know, Pilate, you know how you know my kingdom is not of this world? Where's my army? Where are all those crowds? If my kingdom were of this world, I would have never been in the seat. They would be outside your walls preparing a siege. I am not a threat to Rome. Even my servant Peter, when your soldiers came to get me, he took his sword, he cut off one of your soldiers' ears, and what was my response? I told him to sheathe his sword, I healed his ear, and I willingly came to you. But Pilate can't put two and two together. He does not have eyes to see. He does not have ears to hear. Everything Jesus is saying is just bouncing off his hard heart. Verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. You can almost see him throwing his arms up in the air. Like, thank you for finally saying this. So you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. And for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So we see here in the middle of this drama, Jesus makes an incredibly powerful declaration about himself and about his mission in the world. Jesus didn't come into the world to make war. Jesus didn't come into the world as a judge. Jesus says the reason he was born and the reason he left his heavenly kingdom and to come into the world as a child was to bear witness to the truth. Let me say that again. The reason Jesus emptied himself, he left infinity and he came to time and space. The reason he left heaven and came to earth was to bear witness to the truth. We see John begins his gospel like this, John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came into the world he created so that God's children who were born into darkness could see God's marvelous light. God knew we were blind in our sin and he knew that we could not see without Jesus. So of course, after this statement, Pilate asks, verse 38, what is truth? What is truth? Pilate's day was no different than ours. Today, all you have to do is pick up a newspaper at a bodega, log on to Twitter, TikTok, tune into our endless cycle of news. Our society isn't asking the question, what is truth? Our society is telling you what it is. Everywhere you look, someone is yelling, listen to me. They aren't searching for the truth, they're telling you their truth. They aren't asking how to have abundant life. They believe they have the answer. And if you follow their footsteps, buy their ebook, listen to their podcast, sign up for their newsletter, you also can have the good life. 
So with the rest of our time today, I just want to highlight three important truths that Jesus shows us in this passage about himself. Three important truths. So truth number one, Jesus is king. Just because Jesus' kingdom is not an earthly kingdom does not mean that Jesus is, is not king. If you're the king of heaven, then you are in fact the king of earth. So whether you believe it or not, Jesus is king. He's above every president, every queen, every sheikh, every dictator, all the other political leaders. He's not a footnote in a history textbook. He is the author of history, and he is active in history. But I think what's really hard to wrap our minds around is if Jesus is king, then why, the, why in the world is the world we live in still so messed up? Like, why is there so much injustice and suffering in the world we live? If Jesus is king, why does he allow everything to be so broken? And that is not an easy answer. It's an answer that involves many conversations over coffee, a conversation that I'm happy to have and wrestle with whoever would like that. But there is a short answer. And the short answer is this, that Jesus' kingdom, it has begun, but it hasn't fully come. It's, it's begun, but it isn't fully realized. So we see this earlier in John 16, 22. Jesus says, now is the time of grief. Now is the time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Now is, your now is the time of grief. We see that Jesus was born, and he died, and he, res he was resurrected, and it began his kingdom coming to earth. That's why on the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he says in Matthew 6, 9, and 10, Jesus says, Our Father that is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is ruling in heaven, but his rule has not fully come to earth. And it's why we're praying, Lord, let your let heaven come to earth. And there's very good reason why Jesus does this. There's very good reason why Jesus is waiting to fully bring his kingdom to earth. When heaven comes to earth, when Jesus comes back a second time, it will not be as a peaceful king. It will be a, a king of justice. When Jesus returns in Revelation, we see that he will establish an unending kingdom a new heavens, a new earth, in which all those who are not in his family will be judged and sent away out of his presence forever. So Jesus is king. He's initiated his kingdom coming to earth, but he waits to return, fully bringing his kingdom to earth until all of the children that he has called to be in his family, till all the nations of the world have heard the gospel and believe. He patiently waits for us in love. Jesus is king, but he is kind to return so that all those who hear and believe can be counted into his family. So the question that matters right now 
is the same question he asked Pilate. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord or have you just heard about Jesus? Again, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How do you know that you're in Jesus' kingdom? How do you know that Jesus has a heavenly kingdom? He was born a man, and he died, and three days later he rose again. No other king, no other religious leader has ever died and then rose from the dead. So the question is, in the inner parts of your soul, do you believe that Jesus has all authority? Do you put your faith in Jesus? Does the knowledge that Jesus died and was, rose again on the third day, does it move your heart's affection towards Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Do you see Jesus as a good king? If the answer is yes, you should rejoice. You should rejoice because you're saved. Jesus, through the Spirit, has opened your eyes to see and opened your ears to hear. You are of the truth because you hear Jesus' voice. You are a citizen in King Jesus' heaven. If the answer is no, you sit in the same seat that Pilate once sat. You are like Pilate. You are hearing about Jesus, but you do not see him as king. You may know a lot about Jesus, but you don't put your trust in Jesus. You may know a bunch of facts about Jesus, about Christianity. You might even defend it politically, but deep in your heart, you may not really believe that Jesus died and rose again specifically to forgive your sins. And don't get me wrong, there's, there's lots of good reasons people join churches. You may be here because the church makes Brooklyn feel smaller. It's obviously a warm community. You may be here because you have friends here. You may be here because you like the music. It was amazing. You may be here because your kids are in a safe environment. And don't get me wrong, all those reasons are very good reasons and good benefits of a Christian community. You can know a lot about Jesus. You can even be around Jesus' people. But if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you are missing the most important part. You are missing the good life. And if that's you, I have amazing news. There is nothing you've done. There's no sin too great. There is no burden too heavy to lay at the throne of King Jesus. Jesus is in heaven waiting to return so that more and more and more people can hear and believe and they can cast their burdens at the throne of King Jesus. He sends his messengers to the end of the earth to tell them about Jesus so that they can cast their burdens at the throne of King Jesus. This story is not some one-act play between Jesus and Pilate. It is evidence that Jesus was in total control. He still decided to go to the cross. 
At any point, he could have outlawed Pilate. He could have defended himself, but he didn't. Jesus willingly chose to go to the cross for our sins. He is the good shepherd. This is, talk a lot about this and some of the questions, but this is where God's sovereignty and man's responsibility meet. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of God to crush his suffering servant and put him to grief. It was the Lord's will to sovereignly crush Jesus, not because God was mean, not because he was ruthless, but because Jesus was the only lamb that could bear the weight of sin. Jesus is the only one righteous enough to satisfy the wrath of God against all the injustice in the world. And because he willingly went to the cross, he was an acceptable sacrifice. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, his arms are open wide and ready to adopt all of us into his family. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we know that we do not have a God that does not sympathize with our weakness because he walked where we walked and he understands suffering. And I know in a city like this, in a world like this, there is real suffering, physical suffering, emotional suffering, real suffering. Jesus chose suffering so that we could be made right with him. He loves you and he chose to get down on your level like a parent who gets down low because their child's running and falls on the ground and they don't expect their crying child to come to them. They get down low and they get on their level and they hold them tight. That is Jesus coming to earth for us. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord or have you just heard about Jesus? Truth number two. Jesus' kingdom in this world is the church. Jesus' kingdom in this world is the church. One day Jesus will return and his kingdom will be fully visible. We know from Revelation that his kingdom is a future city a new heavens, a new earth where there is no pain because there is no sin. It is pure love and joy and worship as all the nations come before the throne of Jesus in peace. All of those who have put their faith in Jesus will be added to his new kingdom. They will have new resurrected bodies and we will worship Jesus forever. One day. Today, The church is the visible display of God's kingdom. And it is not perfect. It's far, far, far from God's final kingdom on earth. But it is meant to reflect God's coming kingdom. When Pilate mocks Jesus as king of the Jews, he's looking around and he's asking, Jesus, you're a king. Where is your kingdom? But again, Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That's why in 1 Peter 2, Peter describes us, Jesus' kingdom people, as exiles. If you were a Christian, if you're in Christ, your kingdom is not of this world. Your kingdom's to come. If Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, 
then your kingdom is not of this world. In fact, Jesus' kingdom is counter to this world. We don't go to war over geopolitical boundaries. We're not overwhelmed by earthly politics. If your kingdom is not of this world, we should be selflessly generous with our time, our money. Look at Acts and the birth of the church. Jesus' kingdom is not limited by money or economics. Jesus owns all the cattle on a thousand hills. We are generous because we're exiles and this is not our home. Jesus' people are different than the world and they should be more diverse than a college catalog cover picture. His church is not monoethnic, monolingual, because his kingdom is made up of every tongue, tribe, and nation we see in Revelation 7. The world divides over these things. We don't. You know, the other thing is, Jesus' kingdom, it's okay I say this, but we're not actually made up of natural friends. The rest of the world, they hang out with their friends. The church is made up of people that if we met each other on the street, maybe, maybe we wouldn't be friends. In fact, we might have been mortal enemies. A Russian Christian and a Ukrainian Christian should be able to worship together in the same church. Our kingdom is not of this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are exiles. Our home is a land that we haven't reached yet. We are sojourners. So today, the church is the visible display of God's kingdom. And Christ created the kingdom, the church, to be a new community for his people. People who love, people who forgive, people who bear one another's burdens, who put aside their differences because we are all the same in the shadow of the glorious cross. The church does not build Jesus' kingdom. It reflects Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is building his kingdom. Our role in the mission of God is to properly reflect it. If you want a life centered around Christ, it's a life centered around the church. If you want a life centered around Jesus' kingdom, it is a life centered around the church. Truth number three, and we'll end with this. As exiles, we are all Jesus' kingdom ambassadors. Truth number three, as exiles, we are all Jesus' kingdom ambassadors. I don't know how transient your life is, but today you're here. In Bay Ridge, Diker Heights, Sunset Park, Cobble Hill. God has you here to be his kingdom ambassador. When you look at all the people of Brooklyn, whether they're Muslim or whether they're someone who grew up in church but has kind of wandered away, when you look at them, do you see them like Jesus sees them? When we see the lost, do we just see all the sin? Or do we see people as sheep without a shepherd? The Bible is clear that everyone who is in Christ, who everyone who is not in Christ, is dead in their sin. Pilate had the king of heaven sitting 
across the table from him, and he could not see. He was blind because of his sin. We see in Romans 1.18 that God has made his name and his glory plainly. We can see it in creation. We know it in our conscience, in the law that's written on our hearts, but we suppress the truth. We shove it down. We ignore it because of our sin. We suppress the truth and we turn our love and our affection towards all the things that hurt us, all the things that promise us happiness but cannot deliver. This is a fundamental truth that we have to understand as our role as ambassadors. Let me give you a little illustration. Okay, a little illustration. I think a lot of us, when we think about our lives before we were saved, we think of it kind of something like this. So we're on a boat, we're sailing on a boat, hopefully not in the Hudson, hopefully, you know. We're sailing in a boat, and we kind of fall off the boat. We're about to drown, we're swimming, we're praying, please someone help us. We're, you know, we barely can keep our head above the water. And all of a sudden we see a boat, and it's coming, and it's Jesus. And we say, Jesus, throw me a life raft, throw me a life raft. And Jesus is there, and he throws you a life raft. You sort of swim to him, swim to the life raft, and you grab it, and he pulls you in, and you're saved. That is not at all how the Bible talks about our salvation. It's not it. It's how we think about it, but that's not it. What the Bible says is that you're not swimming. Your head is not above the water. You're, you're dead. You're a corpse. You're at the bottom of the ocean. Fish are eating you. There is nothing you can do to make yourself alive. But Jesus and God, they know that. God sent Jesus to swim down to the bottom of the ocean, to pull you to the shore, to breathe new life into you, to open your eyes to see. You were dead, and Jesus breathed new life into you. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he did not leave us alone. He gave us his spirit, and because of his spirit, his authority. He commissioned all of his disciples, his believers, to speak the gospel and plainly display his love through the church. Jesus' plan for his kingdom is that people are saved by people speaking God's word. People are awakened from the dead by the spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. Likewise, how the church loves one another how the church loves its neighbors is either a magnification of our gospel or it's a minimization of our gospel. Our love either makes our light brighter or it throws a wet blanket on it. The world is noisy. New York City is noisy. People remember very, very little. What the church does the loudest is what people will remember the most. The church should be most known by its love. When all the people of God treasure Jesus, it will spill out in our conversations and it will spill out in our good works. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, we do desire to see you as King Jesus, not just hear about you. Lord, today we pray 
we pray that we see you truly as King Jesus. Thank you for not leaving us alone, for coming to us and rescuing us and breathing new life into us. It is only because of you that we are here worshiping you with our affections set towards you. And in Jesus' name, amen.